good morning. So good to be with you here today. Uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you for another day of life and another Sunday where we can be here gathered as your people. We pray, God, that you would guide this time now as we open your word. God, we want to hear from you. Pray that our eyes would be open, our hearts would be open, that you would speak uh, to us. Thank you for your word, and thank you for your love for us, God. We give you this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, go ahead and open your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 7 as we uh, continue our Advent series, Promise Kept, and taking a break from things as usual. Normally, we'll just be walking through a book of the Bible. We spent a past few months in the book of Mark, but for this special season of Advent, we wanted to pause and really reflect on what this season is all about. Advent is a word that means coming, which points us, of course, back to the first Christmas to think about the coming of Jesus Christ. But it also points us beyond that to the second coming as we look to the future and await the return of Christ. And so it's in that anticipation and expectation and longing that we as a church come to reflect and think about who Jesus is. And so as we get started, I wanted to first share with you this study I came across, a research study that came out a few months ago that was put out by Chapman University, and it was called the Chapman University Survey of American Fears. What they sought to do, they've done this for a few years in a row now, is they wanted to find out what are the things that Americans are most afraid of. And so they surveyed a couple thousand adults and collected all their answers and found the things that people were most afraid of. Now, I've got to be honest, when I opened this article and started reading it, I was expecting to see the usual things that people were afraid of. You know, kind of lighthearted things like spiders or heights or you know, being afraid of eating too much stuffing at Thanksgiving, those sorts of lighthearted things. But as I started reading, things were real. I mean, they were heavy anxieties that people carry with them. And I wanted to read for you a few of the things that were near the top of the list. Things like the fear of war, fear of nuclear war, high medical bills and the cost of health care, not having enough money for the future, or pollution of the planet, corrupt government, and things like that. And so compared to spiders and heights and public speaking, these things are in a whole other category of burden and fear that people carry with them. And it caused me to reflect on the human condition and think about how true it is that we are often a very fearful people as we think about the future. We carry these burdens with us, and often when we're in that place, we're then forced to, to look to someone or something to alleviate that fear, to help us feel a little bit better about our lives or about the state of the world. And we look to all kinds of things to do that. Now, in the ancient world, and in biblical times, one such thing that people could look to as a source of hope or uh, safety in the midst of a scary times, they could look to their king. Their king. Which is a term, as we think about kings and kingdoms, that nowadays that doesn't always connect with us because it seems so outside of our experience in Benicia, California in 2017. I mean, kings are the things that 
or in books and stories, but our real life experience, we have no exposure to kings or kingdoms, really. And so it's a little bit difficult for us to connect. But we see in the ancient world and in Scripture that kings, yes, would represent power and authority, but they had a responsibility to provide for their people a sense of safety. They would go to war for them and protect them from external enemies. Kings would provide justice and a just sense of right and wrong in the land so that people would be cared for. And if they were a good king, then the people of the land would flourish. And if they were a bad king, then they would not. And so we see in Scripture, as we continue this series in Advent, that's called Promise Kept, where we're looking at these promises in the Old Testament that God made and how He fulfilled them. And we see this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God would provide for His people a king, a good king, that would rule peace and justice. And so, we're going to jump in at 2 Samuel 7. You've already turned there. This is a place in the Old Testament that comes after what we talked about last week in the book of Genesis with creation and the fall, how people turned from God. And we're a little bit further down the line there. And now the people of God are living in the land of Israel that he had promised to give to them. And we see that King David is on the throne. You might remember him, David and Goliath, who was a shepherd, turned king, and he's ruling. And we see that in the first 11 verses of chapter 7 about God has given David and the people of Israel a lot of blessing and peace and rest and safety from the enemies that were around them. They were now in this land and for so long they had been oppressed and persecuted and uh, in fear of violence and enemies around them. But they have this sense of security now that they're dwelling in the land and God has blessed them. And then we see his words in verse 12 of chapter 7. This is God speaking. He says to David, hey David, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And skipping ahead to verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So God comes to David. He says, David, you're going to die. Spoiler alert. But There's coming after you one of your sons, one of your own flesh and blood who will rule in your place. And he will rule on your throne and I will establish his kingdom forever. And so this peace that the people are experiencing, this justice, this rest that I have given to you and the people will be extended forever through this king that is to come and rule. And the glory of God will extend throughout all the earth and the people of the earth will be blessed. And several times in these verses, you see that the word forever is repeated. Forever, forever. This is going to be something that will not end. This justice and this rest. And this is good news. This is a good promise. And so naturally, then, as we continue to look through the Old Testament, we would be looking for, okay, who is this promised king? 
this king that's going to come and rule on David's throne and provide all these good things for the people of God. And all the signs begin to point to Solomon. Okay, Solomon is David's son. We see in the book of 1 Kings, the very next book of the Bible, that as David is growing old in age, Solomon comes upon the throne. 1 Kings chapter 1, and we're going to go pretty fast through the book of 1 Kings here, so if you can flip really quickly through your Bible, great, otherwise the words are going to be on the screen and it'll be great there as well. So 1 Kings chapter 1, check it out, verse 46, says this, Solomon has taken his seat on the royal throne. Also, the royal officials have come to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make Solomon's name more famous than yours and his throne greater than yours. And the king bowed in worship on his bed and said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has allowed my eyes to see a successor on my throne today. So the prophecy has been fulfilled. This king to rule after David, the son of David, to come and rule in power on his throne forever, it must be Solomon. He's in power now. This is good news. And this gets affirmed as the story goes on. We look just a couple chapters later in 1 Kings chapter 3. You might remember this. God comes to Solomon famously and he says to him, Solomon, I want to bless you. I want to give you good things. Ask me, what do you want? And I'll give it to you. And as we're reading that, we sometimes think, that wouldn't it be great if God would do that to me? Just come and say, hey, I'll, I'll give you whatever you What do you want? I want to bless you. But this could be a potential turning point in the story. Because, I mean, what if Solomon asked for something stupid? What if he says, I, I'd really like a, a slip and slide from the top of the palace all the way down, God. If you could hook me up with that, we'd be great. Or what if he says, I know how this works. One thing I want, I want an endless amount of requests, God. One wish. How about endless wishes? And God would say, no, Solomon, it doesn't work like that. You can't ask for that. Or what if he asked for something evil and something bad? We don't know. We, we don't know how Solomon's going to respond. Things could go south. And so we read how he responds. In verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, So God, here's what I want. Give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? In verse 10, the Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. And so God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. So again, we read on. This must be the guy. He passes the test. God says, what do you want? He says, I want wisdom so I can be a good king and rule with justice and know right from wrong and bless the people, God. That's what I want. And it says God was pleased that he asked for that. Say, great, the prophecy has been fulfilled. And there's more. If you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the verse that we read to start when God made this promise to David, he said, this son, this king that is going to come from your line, he will build me a house. 
a house for my name. And so this ruler, this king that is to come, is going to build a temple for God, a place where God would be worshipped, a place where God would be honored. And we see that Solomon does that. In chapters 5 through 7 of 1 Kings, Solomon builds the temple. And then in verse 8, Solomon dedicates the temple to God. And he says in chapter 8, God, there is no one like you. And before all this people at this big ceremony dedicating the temple, verse 24 of chapter 8, he says this, God, you have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. So he's saying, God, you made this promise back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David, my father, to anoint a new king that will rule forever and he would build you a throne. And so I've built you this temple, this house for you to dwell. And so the prophecy is being fulfilled. And so we're reading along, we're saying, this is the guy. God's keeping his promises. Look no further. Print up the t-shirts. Give this guy a reality TV show. It's here. King Solomon. This is the answer. Right? Or is there more to the story? As you may have suspected, things kind of go south. And we're going to read on in Solomon's story. But first, we've got to go real quick to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Okay, a few books in the Bible back God tells his people, he says, guys, I'm, I'm bringing you into the land. This is after they've been brought out of slavery in Egypt, and they're heading to the promised land, and God sits them down and says, guys, you're going to come into the land, I'm going to give you safety, and there are going to be kings that are going to rule over you, and I have some rules for my kings. Three things I want my kings to abide by. Three regulations that these kings better do or not do. Okay, so let's read them. Deuteronomy 17, verse 16. He says, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Verse 17, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. And he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Okay, three rules. God says, for my kings, here's how I want them to operate. Rule number one, no horses which is not arbitrary, even though it sounds that way. It's not that God doesn't like animals or equestrians or things like that. Horses represented war, represented animals that would ride, uh, carry chariots and building up armies. And so if a king were to accumulate horses, that's a way of talking about building up a large army. So God's saying, I don't want my kings to be men of violence and to use force and all these uh, military means. I don't want them to trust in their Horses, number one. Rule number two, I don't want them to take many wives. And rule, we're not going to go into that one too much. And rule number three, I don't want you to accumulate or stockpile wealth. I don't want you to trust in your riches and just hoard the things that I bless you with. Okay? Three rules. No horses, not many wives, don't hoard your wealth. Back to Solomon in First Kings. Chapter 10, he's dedicated the temple. He's already ruling on the throne. He asked God for wisdom to be a good king. Now chapter 10, verse 23. King Solomon was greater in riches and 
wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. And we read in the surrounding verses how he had accumulated silver and gold and great amounts of wealth. And we think, uh uh-oh. Three verses later, verse 26, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. We think, uh uh-oh. Well, I mean, he's only broken two of the three rules, right? So he's probably still the guy. Okay, let's not get carried away. A couple verses later. Chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, they were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had seven hundred wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. Now I'm no mathematician. But I think when God says don't take many wives, 700 would cross the line. Okay? So things were so promising for Solomon and yet we see in the very next verse the verdict come in as Solomon grew old It says, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father, had been. So Solomon's not the guy. He's not the fulfillment of this prophecy. Because sin enters his life, and he turns from God. And we see that after so much promise, things just go incredibly South. Later in chapter 11, he dies, and then things tragically go from bad to worse. And rather than being a united kingdom under one king, there's tension and animosity between the people, and the kingdom is divided. And there's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and they have different kings, and they don't get along, and it just becomes... Leader after leader, if you read through the book of First and Second Kings, I mean, it's just, it's an absolute train wreck. I mean, it's a, it's a raging dumpster fire of leaders, just over and over, king after king comes to power. And under David and Solomon, again, there was peace and hope and justice. But now, under these evil, wicked kings that come after them, there's division and idolatry and violence and greed and Murder and injustice and devastation and death, king after king. And in that time period that follows, there's roughly 40 kings that come to power. And all but a small handful were wicked kings. And the Bible says over and over again, so-and-so came to power and they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then so-and-so came to power after them and they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And on and on and on. They did not worship God alone. The people suffered, which all ultimately led to judgment and exile. And God allows these foreign powers to come in, Babylon and Assyria, and they take over the northern kingdom, and they take over the southern kingdom, and they destroy the temple, and they cart off all the people, and the people are brought into exile, into slavery, and they're not living in the land. And there's no one on the throne. There's no longer a king that God has established It's complete 
devastation. That's a real brief history of the books of First and Second Kings in the Old Testament. And it ends in this place that is not good. That's just dark and it leaves us wondering, what about the promise God made in 2 Samuel 7? He said there would be a king that would rule a son of David that would come to power and his kingdom would have no end. It would be for the blessing of the people and the whole world. And now we see that there's no king in the land and David's line is in slavery in a foreign land. Did God forget about his promise? Is he done? The good ending never came that the people were expecting. I mean, this would be as if you were watching the Christmas classic, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And if the movie just cut off before the Who's start singing their joyful songs that Christmas morning. I mean, imagine the Grinch just goes down, steals the presents, steals everything out of the fridge, goes back up to his cave, and Cindy Lou Who comes and tries to persuade him, and he just sends her away. He says, no, I'm keeping the presents, and it just ends there. What kind of story would that be? No roast beast, no presents, no singing, no Christmas? It'd be devastating. Or the other Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life. We watch that every Christmas Eve, Amber and I do. We love that movie. But think about it. If you know the story, George Bailey committed to his family, committed to his community, and then he falls on hard times. And that fateful Christmas Eve, he's, he yells at his kids and he's mad at his family and he runs out into a snowstorm and he's wandering and he's thinking about taking his own life. And it's, he's in a dark place and he thinks it's better if he would die than if he would stay alive. Like, what if it just stopped there? If that's where the story ended. He never went home. He never met Clarence. He never saw the impact he had in his friends' lives and the friends never came and surrounded him with love in his time of need. What if it just cut off that dark, snowy night where he wanted to take his life? You think that's no ending? It would leave you longing for something more. Isn't there a good ending that's supposed to come after this? So the people in the Old Testament experiencing this would be wondering, are we just on our own now? Maybe some of us here can relate with that, especially this time of season, this, this place of fear and devastation, and especially this time of year that's supposed to be the most wonderful time of year. Sometimes we feel more alone, more grumpy than ever at Christmas time. Because we're reminded of family tensions, unmet expectations within our homes. We long for peace in our world, but we see nothing but violence and war and fear outside. Maybe we're burdened by the credit card debt we have or the memories of loss this time of year, of loved ones or friends. We're reminded of our own sin and shame. We can relate to, to this place of, are we just on our own, God? What is going on? And it's in those moments that doubt can come on strong. We say, well, if God's not keeping his promises to care for us, I guess we have to look elsewhere. So we look to any number of things to give us hope, to give us 
peace. I mean, this creeps into politics. If you look at the way that we do politics today, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, people look to their person, their politician. Let's get behind them. Let's celebrate them. Because if they get this position of influence and power, then they're just going to support our agenda and, and be for us and solve all of our problems. And so we put our hope in them. We put our hope in money and think that, well, if, if we just had more money, we'd be secure. Our safety and peace comes from money. Doesn't it feel a lot better when your bank account has more money in it than less? You feel a little safer, a little more secure. Sometimes we look to our phones for security. Have you ever spent a day without your phone nowadays? How vulnerable do you feel? It's kind of scary. You're like, what do, what do I do? What if I, what if I need to call someone? Or what if I need to, you know, find directions to get somewhere? Or take a low-quality picture of my dessert when I'm out at dinner? What, do, how do, what am I going to do? It brings all kinds of fear into your life. But really, how secure do we feel when we have that device where we can look at it constantly? It gives us a sense of security. Again, maybe we just give up hope and we say, you know what, I can't trust anyone. I've been burned too many times. I've been hurt, wounded. So I just got to look out for myself. If I want justice, if I want peace in my life, then I better figure it out because no one else is going to help. We can relate. So with all of that in mind, turn to Luke chapter 1 with me. Now, in the New Testament, since the book of Kings, a lot has happened in the rest of the Old Testament. The people of God have returned from exile and are now living in Israel again, but there's no king on the throne. We read these words in Luke's Gospel, the first chapter, verse 26, we'll start. It says, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of of the Most High, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Do you see then what good news this would be for the people of God and for the world? For those that knew their Old Testament, that knew the story of David and Solomon and the kings and the exile and were waiting for this promise to be fulfilled and wondered if it ever would be in here. In Luke chapter 1, this angel declares, this Jesus will have the throne of his father David. This Jesus, his kingdom will be established forever. And all the language in there, there's so many parallels to that promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Luke chapter 1 is making it so clear that this promised king, this coming savior, is now here and his name is Jesus. Not David, not Solomon, not any of the kings that came after. His name 
is Jesus. And as a good king would do, King Jesus brings peace and safety for his people. He brings peace and rest for all who would trust in him. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through faith in Christ, we can be made right with God. Where there once was hostility, where we once were rebels running away from God, God has brought peace if we would trust in Him. He's brought peace to us as well because He's conquered our enemies. Not any human enemies, but He conquered our greatest enemies of sin and death. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin and He rose from the grave so we would no longer fear the penalty of sin. We would no longer fear death, but through faith in Christ we could be raised to newness of life and have eternal life in Him. I mean, this is the heart of the Gospel. This is what we celebrate, that Jesus came to rescue us, to die in our place, to take our sins away so that through faith, not through works, but through faith, believing in Him, we can belong to Him and be called His children again and be forgiven and given His Spirit within us and have peace with God. He also came to bring peace horizontally as well. Peace between us. Because Jesus calls us to be peacemakers, to love our enemies. Jesus did not come to bear the sword. He came to bear His cross. And so we, in his place are to be agents of hope and grace and peace, to love our enemies, to pray for even our enemies, to pray for those that even persecute us and don't like us, to follow the way of Jesus, to bring peace to a broken world. And we see that this kingdom that Jesus brings is an eternal one. It is forever. That language is repeated in Luke chapter 1 as we look to the future we don't have to fear that somehow this kingdom is going to stop and the powers of evil are going to overtake it or that we're somehow going to slip back into death. No, if we have put our faith in Christ, we are secure in Him. He holds our lives. He holds our futures. And we can look out at the world with great hope, not because of our own strength, because of the work of Christ in our place. Jesus is the King, the second Samuel promised. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. And we do have to note that the kingdom Jesus brings did not look the way that people expected it to. Right? As faithful Jews would read the Old Testament, they would expect the kingdom of David to be this throne of, of an earthly power that would be established by military force, by conquering human enemies, by the way of of violence and military power, but the way of King Jesus is not that way. Again, he didn't come to kill the Romans. He came to die for the Romans and bring forgiveness for the world through his sacrificial death. He didn't come born in a palace with a military escort. He came born in a lowly stable to an unwed mother. So the way of Jesus is the way of peace the way of love and hope for the world. And so if all of this is true, then we have to consider how we should respond. How should we respond to this king? 
One theologian put it this way. He said, the first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. I'll say it again. The first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. Our duty is not to pursue our freedom above all else. Our duty is to pursue the one whom we are to serve and submit to. Now I ask you, is this true? Because when you put this up against the American dream or our Western notion of self-actualization, this sounds like blasphemy. I mean, this sounds like heresy, like the exact opposite of our values as Americans. I mean, wouldn't we instead say the first duty of every soul is to find not its master, but its freedom? Our duty is to find freedom. I mean, self-expression at all costs. Find what you like to do and go and do it. No one else can tell you how to live. It's about you being you. Don't let anyone else tell you how to live. I mean, didn't we fight a whole war about this? To throw off a king in the 1700s, the Revolutionary War? Because we were Americans and we didn't want a king. We wanted freedom. We wanted to do things our way. It's part of the American spirit that we all in some way carry. And then we come to Scripture and see the claims of Christ to be a king. A king that we are to bow down to. A king that we are to serve and to submit to and give our lives. And that brings a bit of a rub for us. We see there is one we are called to obey and submit to and give our very lives to. And that's King Jesus himself. And so really the question for us this morning is, will we recognize that he is king? Will we worship him as king? Will we give him our lives? Say, Lord, take my life. Use me. I want to be about your purposes. I want to trust you and walk with you and be obedient to you and be an agent of peace and hope in this world in your name. Will we do this? So I hope that this Christmas season, when we sing songs like Joy to the World, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. That those wouldn't be empty words, but we would fully realize the rich meaning and the depth that Jesus is king. And he has given us as his people all of this peace that we've talked about today, but he calls us to follow him. We're going to have a chance this morning to respond Something that Christians, since the time of Christ, has been doing together. We've been coming to communion. Coming to the Lord's table, where we have a chance to take the elements, the bread and the cup, and remember the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. It's through these elements that we remember that Jesus' body was broken. The bread represents that, and the cup represents His blood that was shed for us for the forgiveness of sins. Remember that he died in our place. And the, the beauty of communion is that we get to come and, and do this as a people. We do this as a church family. Together we come forward, recognizing our need, recognizing the work of Christ in our place. And so the music's going to play in a few minutes. And as you're 
able and ready, we encourage you to come forward to the table and take the bread and the cup and, and do this in remembrance of Christ. Now, this is for anyone who has trusted in Jesus. And so if, uh, if you're new here or not sure uh, if you've come to faith in Christ, then no pressure. Feel free to just stay seated where you're at. Don't have to come forward or feel any pressure. Um, just encourage you to consider the things that we've talked about this morning. And, and one thing that we're going to do a little different before communion, we've done this before, but uh, we're going to have a time of confession together. And this is something, again, throughout the centuries of church history, the church has practiced confession where we acknowledge our sin together. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have some words on the screen, and I'm going to invite you guys to stand with me in just a second, and we're going to together read this prayer of confession where we recognize before the Lord that we have sinned and fallen short and we needed a Savior. And so we recognize that together and then we get to celebrate the joy of coming to the table and celebrating that we are forgiven. Through God's grace, we are made new and washed clean. And the beauty of confession is that it just gives us a chance to acknowledge what we know to be true. We know ourselves, we know our lives are not the way we wish they were. We know we fall short of how God has called us to live. We know that sin is real. And so through confession, we just get to say, Lord, we're guilty and we need your grace. And so would you, would you stand with me? And we're going to just read this prayer, confession out loud, and then I invite you to come forward as you're ready. Merciful God, have mercy on our souls According to your unwavering love, according to your abundant mercy, wipe away our sins and the guilt we carry. Instead, write on our hearts your love, your boundaries for our lives, your salvation that sets us free from our sins, to live the abundant life you have for each of us. Lord, create in us clean hearts. Renew your spirit within us. Do not turn us away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from us. Lord, help us to see Jesus, to love Jesus, to follow Jesus, to serve Jesus. Restore to us the joy of your salvation for your glory and our good. Amen.